Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I am here today with not one, but two Spriram Krishnans. Oh my God, is it, it is a pleasure. This has been a long time in the works. Thank you guys so much for coming on this podcast. No problem. The pleasure is all ours, I guess. <laughs> Thank you for having us. This is long awaited. Yes. It's going to be historic. Is it going to break the internet? Yeah. Sriram one, perhaps you can introduce yourself. <laughs> For future reference, you should call me the good-looking Oh, my God. Here we go again. Uh, <laughs> so, Here we go uh, again. I like it. Yeah. I am Sriram Krishnan. If this was Highlander, I think I should be the last one standing. Like, I should be Christopher Lambert with the good hair. So, quick backstory on me. Uh, I currently run a bunch of product teams on the consumer side at Twitter. Previously, I worked at other social companies. I spent many years at Facebook working on their ads product. I spent a year at Snap working on uh, revenue there. And before that, you know, was at a bunch of other tech companies. Yeah. And I'm the good-looking serial person. And you're also 6'11"? <laughs> <laughs> I am weirdly tall, especially, I believe, from like in, somebody from India. So I am weirdly tall. I'm 6'6", six, six, but I... I'm weirdly tall. Do you play basketball? I used to. Now I just tweet about it on the internet. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're if you over seven feet, I think you have like a, a, a insanely high yeah. percent chance of making the NBA. I think you have a hundred percent of people asking you, do you play? And then you feel bad because you're out of shape and you can't dunk. Like I can't dunk and people are like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? And Man. You know, there's a very tall guy who had a card and that says, yes, I'm tall. Yes. <laughs> yes. The weather is not, uh, not very different up here. You should have one of those. Uh, I, I have like a standard template. I go through every conversation. Question for you guys. Do you think it's easier for the, the average person in the United States, any person at random is it easier for that person to make the NBA or become president? Chances are higher for what, which one? I think in this current climate, given who the president is right now, I feel like there's a far more likely chance for anyone to be president than an NBA star. I feel like being an NBA star requires years of discipline and rigor, and which obviously clearly doesn't apply in this. Uh, I'll reply by saying the other Sriram Krishnan runs marketing for his company, so he can't get in trouble for anything he says on this podcast. I can, okay. so I'm just going to leave it there. Okay, we're not getting into politics. <laughs> That's a fair point. Okay. Why don't you introduce yourself? <laughs> sure. So, hi, I'm Sri Ram Krishnan. I am currently at Headspin. I run product marketing and partnerships here. It's a solution for mobile app developers to help them improve the quality of their quality and performance of their app pre-release and pro-release. So, I've been here for about nine to ten months. I was previously the head of international growth at Tinder. And uh, prior to that, used to hit up new markets at Spotify, basically helping Spotify launch all around the world, which was such a fun experience. I am originally from Malaysia, and uh, prior to moving to the U.S., I lived in seven-plus countries. So been here for four years and love it. Uh, I have to compete with this guy, with this Muppet, uh, <laughs> for, for Mindshare. And... <laughs> am, I, am, I still, am I still ahead of you on Google? You, you dominate the S, uh, SEO on Google. As it should be. <laughs> is, it, uh, is it sort of a rising tide lifts all boats? Like, Do you feel like you guys leverage each other? Uh, I feel like... Do you feel like you're in it together? I feel like we're an equal opportunity, Sri Ramakrishnan. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like we're all leveraging each other's strengths and weaknesses. Is it a zero-sum game? Uh, it's, it, I think the only reason we actually know each other, uh, I think originally was because we have the same name. 
And I actually, while I was preparing for this podcast, I take this podcast very seriously. Yeah, yeah. It is the very first time I'm doing a podcast purely because we have another person of the same name. So very unique opportunity. And I actually went up, looked up all of our early interactions. So, and the only reason we met was because we had the same name and we used to have this history. We still do of people sending us stuff meant for the other person. So I have, you know, years and years of fun, embarrassing stories of, you know, people sending me things meant for him, people sending him things meant for me. It's crazy. Okay, so, so we, we just real quick, we have a lot to cover in this podcast. You know, Spotify, Tinder, Facebook, Snap, Twitter, basically all big consumer social platforms. But the reason we're, we're the name of this episode is called On Being Surum Krishnan. So perhaps we could start with some a story or two of how you know, you were misplaced for the other. Yeah. So we first connected. So very quickly, we first connected when he was blogging about tech. I was blogging about tech. I was in Sweden and I added, I linked to his web, to his blog, asking him for an invite to Silverlight. And then since then, obviously we kept in touch digitally. So one very, very interesting situation that came up when I was at Spotify and when you probably just left Yahoo was this Sri Ram wrote a very long, scathing blog post about what Marissa Maya should do at Yahoo, right? And at that point, I was at Spotify. Spotify and Yahoo had a partnership. So one day, I got I read that blog post thinking, oh, okay, great. And I two days it was later... A, it was a work of art. It was... <laughs> like, I, just, I was like, okay, wonderful. Uh, and then two days later, I got an email from a head, head of PR saying, Sri Ram, and it started off with, and I hope all is well with you. So you know when an email starts with, and I hope all is well with you, it actually doesn't really end well. And it basically... Uh, was a reprimand for me writing about a partner in a very negative term. So I was obviously very... Is sh- Spotify head of PR? Uh, Spotify head of PR. And basically, she was very, very polite. And she was basically saying, hey, just be, be sure to... When you write something about our partner, just be sure to run it by us next time. And in that, like, 10 seconds, I was obviously afraid. I was thought I was going to get fired. And then I clicked the link. And it basically <laughs> said, like, a bunch of stuff that obviously he wrote uh, that was not even remotely applicable or relevant to me. So he almost got you fired. I was going to be fired. And then I responded by saying, like, in five, six words, not me. I never worked at Yahoo. And then obviously she apologized. And, uh, and for all that work and all that trauma she caused me, I made, I, at that point got her to donate to my charity water campaign. <laughs> so that's, I feel like that started off the entire. And then you obviously have a lot more stories. There you go. I mean, look at me. My writing, you know, led to a good cause getting some money. So I mean, if you, yeah, that's the takeaway from the story. That's the takeaway from the story. <laughs> Keep writing more. And, uh, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I think. I have cost him probably way more pain than he has cost me. I have two stories. First is uh, when I was at Facebook, I think Sriram had just left Spotify. And there was a piece of, uh, a lot of this involves like somebody writing a press piece about either one of us or Googling us. And somebody had written a press piece about Sriram leaving Spotify. But this person had mixed up our LinkedIn uh, profiles. They said, you know, Sriram Krishnan who worked at Spotify and now at Facebook, uh, is now leaving to go do something else. My manager at Facebook emails me and he's like, uh, and she's like, hey, you know, are you leaving? Like, I just read this press piece that people have been forwarding around. And I was like, no, 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 there's nothing wrong. And I'm still here, you know. And so there was a mini kerfuffle I had to put out. But my favorite story around our name switches is when I was thinking of joining Snap and I wound up signing the offer. And I believe like, Record or TechCrunch wrote a piece. I get this message out of the blue from Sean Rad, uh, who I think believe was running Tinder at the time. Now I had met Sean once or twice, but you know we weren't uh, deeply in touch. And he asked me, "Hey, I just saw the piece. Great news! Congratulations! I was really hoping you were going to take this growth job at uh, Tinder. So I'm kind of sad." And I was going, "Huh? Like I didn't 
no, I was in the running for a growth job at Tinder. And I sent him this note saying, hey, yeah, okay, thank you. Um, thanks. I didn't know you wanted me for growth at Tinder, but thank you. I appreciate it. And then like only like an, like an hour or two later, I realized that, whoa, you know, I might have just like, you know, messed up and gotten in the way of this, you know, my doppelganger over here and, you know, his uh, uh, conversation with Tinder. So... Yeah, that was funny because I, at that point in time, was transitioning from human to Tinder as part of the acquisition. And obviously, I met Sean numerous times as part of the process. And then you had to double check with me on that. And that was really, I mean, that was really funny. There's another one. Remember, we met the same person. So when a VC who is a mutual friend of ours, basically his EA accidentally sent an invite to me. And because I work with this VC firm... And I just thought it was, and with him, I thought it was for me. So when I attended the meeting, I actually <laughs> saw I was, there. I was already there. And we were like, all right, you know, it's like. So did you stay in the meeting? I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. Um, well, I mean, buy one, get one free, I guess. Yeah, we did. Like, and, and actually, I, you know, so, you know uh, Ted Maidenberg, who was here, actually has spoken about it on Twitter. You know, he was like, both of you are here. This is awesome. Let's all three of us chat. And we had this awesome meeting with just the three of us with twice the Sriram Christians for the price of one. Exactly. So that was and awesome. I'm actually meeting him this Friday. So you know, if you that. guys combined your resumes, you you know, most extensive consumer product, you know, resume ever. Yeah. You know, I mean, Facebook, I just, Twitter, Snap, crazy. Spotify, Tinder. When are you guys going to start a fund? Called Sri Ramakrishnan. <laughs> yes, the only utility we add is that we have the exact same name. So you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, we can stretch it as we can see and how how far it goes. I mean, we we thought about creating a website, a catch-all website, uh, <laughs> all at Sri Ramakrishnan right, Exactly. You just email all of us at the exact and same. Then you time. get you get a product specialist, you get a marketing growth person, you get like you know what I mean. All we need is an engineering Sri Ramakrishnan company. That's a great idea. If this happens, you know, Eric, you should take credit. Like right here, right now, something amazing was born. It's like. 15 Serum Christians and just like Eric Tornberg advisor. <laughs> just on the side. You just, or you can just change your name. Get yeah, get in with the cool crowd. Yeah, that's true. I'm willing to take that sacrifice. Shall we get into some of the good stuff? Serum, not you. Yes. <laughs> Tinder. Yes. Does it even make sense for someone to com- try to compete with them today? What is the dating landscape going to look like a few years from now? Is so- it just dominated by tinder what? tinder is one of these companies that sort of took the world by storm right so it's a category creating category defining company so it pretty much i would say invented the whole 1825 1835 dating category so the one thing i realized at, at tinder and, and, and which is sort of often understated is the importance of liquidity so one thing tinder did really really well and what i mean by liquidity and this other three i'm christian was giving me a <laughs> So it's like at the end of the day, Tinder is like a two-sided market. The way I see it, right? It's a two-sided marketplace, and and you need liquidity in terms of users so that each respective uh, or any gender can experience the app in a in a great way. So what Tinder did really really well early on was build that liquidity ground up. So going to college campuses and basically getting all the cool kids on like on the product. Liquidity, you mean people who are DTF at any moment? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily (laughs) that, but just users who want to use the product, right? Uh, I just like the choice of words he's using at this moment. No, I mean, uh, and, 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 and that, so, and obviously that, that groundswell of adoption is, is something that obviously took off and it's very difficult to replicate. So, so eventually, because when you have that sort of liquidity, when you have that many users on the product, it, 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 it sort of makes it very difficult for other players to come in, right? So to, to your point about whether or not there's a room for another dating service, obviously I'm not going to say no, because that make me, maybe, may, may make me sound like an idiot four or five years down the line, but I feel like Tinder has 
dominated this market to the point where it's it's uh, i mean there are a couple of other dating site dating dating services out there but but it, they've made it remarkably difficult to come in to the point because you have to sort of acquire the level acquire the level of liquidity now if you if you sort of break it down by region by region i feel like there are arbitrage there are opportunities for other dating apps to come in where Tinder or other dating services are underpenetrated and maybe can address certain cultural uh, nuances. Like obviously in East Asia, uh, dating is very different. Like the, the whole concept of dating is very different. In South Asia, it's very, uh, it's taboo oftentimes. Well, obviously Tinder is working to change that. Southeast Asia, very different. So if, so there are certain areas that, that obviously remain ripe for disruption, but I feel like by and large, Tinder has created this moat, which is very difficult to overcome. Tinder has a couple of other dating services I've created this moat that are, that's very hard to overcome. Yeah. I've always been curious about the dating apps, one facet of it, which is in one way, the ultimate success for any person <laughs> using one of these apps is to find, you know, some sort of get into some sort of long-term relationship on a partner of some sort. Uh, I'm just kind of stereotyping here. Yeah. So are you almost incentivized to have your, your customers not be really successful? I mean, the thing about dating apps is churn is always like, well, I guess <clears throat> the thing is at the end of the day, if we provide so value, you go on a date, but not a really good date. Well, I mean, I guess you could, you could argue that at the end of the day, you provide value and you make sure that a, a meaningful connection is made in whatever shape and form. I know you get, both of you are laughing and grinning. Then there's value creation, right? I mean, and then at the end of the day, whether it's temporary value or permanent value, that it's sort of in the eyes of the beholder, right? So, so, uh, so we sort of optimize for that connection for that. Sorry, Tinder. Uh, uh, obviously optimize for that connection and create they're creating a meaningful experience whether or not people come back or not i mean if they come back great if they don't and sort of they settle and and do something else that's that's up to them yeah so so five years from now 10 years from now you think tinder's got it unlocked there's no no challenge i mean obviously it's, it'll be very it'll be very naive of me to say anything about the future five ten years from now but i feel like Tinder, given at the rate at which it's innovating, uh, new products, new new features, the team is doing a phenomenal job. I personally think it's 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 got a lot more untapped potential that that in in different areas, different countries. I think the I think the product roadmap is still hasn't been fully developed yet. I think there's a lot more interesting things interesting things coming. So, right. will there be new behaviors in the way that we use mobile apps to date? Like you know. Bumble was innovative in that it gave the, the woman choice. You know, there have been like video dating apps. There's Relationship Hero. Yeah. Just trying to give people advice using machine learning. Yeah. Maybe you're involved now. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I've heard of that, yes. <laughs> like, do you think there'll be new behaviors or like we'll be, we'll be using mobile apps? To yeah, mobiles? I think I think if you look at emerging areas like VR, I think that's going to help bridge the gap between... Because if you think about there's there's a lot of dating apps out there and, and, and people are sort of... There's, an, there's, there's a hangover. Uh, a lot of people are complaining about oh, there's so many matches. The value of a match is 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 is, is diminishes over time. So I feel like there's an opportunity f- that that can bridge. There's an opportunity to sort of make these online relationships even like take it to the next level of engagement. I think VR and maybe like has a, has a, has a place to play there. So maybe. If it takes off, that could be a behavior, sort of a significant behavior shift. Then obviously, like services like Relationship Hero come in, I would say maybe during, maybe post, uh, post Tinder, right? When people need help to either chat better or just like uh, resolve their relationships. So I feel like there's an opportunity along the entire Life, like life st- exactly life cycle of a relationship match group does this really really well obviously they have a bunch of properties not many people know this but match group actually owns yeah. a lot of services that that people 30 plus people use and they've been doing that really really well but they're mostly well. on top of funnel right 
in the sense of like getting, you know, matching people for dates, not like couples therapy or like helping people when they break up or like yeah. when you talk about the whole life cycle. Yeah, sorry. So there aren't that many, well, there aren't that many services in that area to begin with. I feel like the digitization of you look at therapy services, which well, usually, which is usually only sort of accessible to people who A, could afford it or B, willing enough to go to a physical location. You see the virtualization of these, like doc, like doctors on demand, virtualization of these otherwise sort of very physical oriented services. I feel like therapy, relationship therapy and all that, there's an emerging market. And I think that's going to be highly, highly lucrative and and just going to, going to kill it. So I feel like those type of services can exist. And do you think Tinder's lock-in, is it more like LinkedIn's lock-in where it's like, you don't even, you know, the, it's just so hard to get resumes online. The network effects are so strong. It's just so hard to, you know, LinkedIn didn't even have to innovate in their product that much for them to just be dominant. Or is it more like snaps lock-in to the extent that you believe they have lock-in, which is more the gingerbread strategy of we're just going to innovate faster than you. Um, you so I think it's a combination of both. I think by virtue of being sort of the, 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 the category creator and category leader, I think Tinder has created this brand. And it's pretty synonymous mm-hmm. to dating. So, and, and, and sort of that brand appeal certainly is very, has, has that state, that, that ability, that, that stay power, I would say, that ability to sort of transcend time through multiple cohorts of users that come on board, uh, 18 year olds that come on yeah. board. Uh, and liquidity again, it, like it's funny because if you think about it, when you use a dating app, obviously, I mean, as a guy or a girl and sort of uh, whatever user you might be, I mean, obviously you want to have as m- many matches or as many swipes as possible, right? Imagine a service that only shows you three or four profiles. Obviously, you're not going to be very happy with that service. Whereas with Tinder, anywhere you go around the world, you're going to have so many options or so many profiles, right? So, uh, and what's been really impressive is actually Tinder working in countries like India. So I remember first talking to Sridham about like Tinder expanding in India many, many years ago. And, you know, being from India, I always, you know, India is, can sometimes be very conservative about, uh, there's a lot of social stigma. Like, for example, you know, my wife and I dated and got married and that was fairly controversial at the time. And I remember thinking, oh, wait, this could be a challenge because, you know, uh, you know, this could make, clash with these sort of social mores that large parts of India have. But they have been like remarkably successful places like India. And I was like, wow, that is fairly amazing. And even as somebody who's lived in India for 20, 25 years, I would not have expected that. Yeah. So India is actually very interesting because if you think about it, obviously there's a taboo with dating, there's a taboo with uh, relationships and sex and all sorts of things that we in the sort of the Western world take for granted, right? But India is very interesting because Consider India like an like like an onion, right? There are so many layers to it that you have to peel. And in sort of in cities like Bombay and uh, sorry Mumbai and Delhi that are sort of more connected to I wouldn't say more connected, but are sort of more affluent by and large compared to the average. There are various communities in those different cities that are similar to an average person in Europe or Australia or US, right? So so Tinder in India obviously. I mean, appeal to that demographic first. And, and, and obviously it was part of the conversation in the country about what's the role of women. Cause you know, Indian culture is very patriarchal in nature. So, so it's, it's very interesting how India, how Tinder in India took off because in an, in an otherwise very patriarchal culture, like Tinder is now showing that, Hey, women do have a choice and can sort of take control of their, of, of their choices or of their, of their lifestyle. So it's a very interesting phenomenon, not only in India, but in other countries in Southeast Asia, East Asia. So it's it's pretty it's pretty remarkable. Did you see Lucy Guo's apply to date? Sorry, apply to date dot com. Did you see that? Uh, so I, yeah, I keep seeing a lot of that pop up on yeah, it's uh, a date, like a marketplace where you could apply to date. You put your profile online and basically yeah. say, hey, you know what? Yeah, come at me. <laughs> New people marketplaces are pretty interesting. I saw one in Florida. I can't remember the name, but basically it's like it's uh, grandparents paying college students to keep them company, 
they're they're old they're they, they, and you know college students want to make some more money so you know <laughs> they'll get paid to keep old people company and it's interesting there are other people who are paying for tennis play i think japan is pretty popular to pay to like like i could ask a friend i want to go play tennis with someone i could ask a friend or i could just pay and someone will like it's ask rabbit but for like social activities and i'm curious if that will be more more dominant behavior you can yeah i think in india you know one of the things i think has happened is that all these existing social infrastructure which used to exist uh, for example if you go back like you know 70 80 years the way somebody got married is you know your elderly relatives you know would know a bunch of people and be like hey this person you know is looking for you know uh, a guy or a girl they put the word out they would sort of run a interview process which i'm guessing would have been like really painful i'm guessing it still is i'm guessing this still really happens and that that was kind of a social infrastructure which existed then but India has changed so dramatically uh, it's become so urban people are really independent especially you know if you look at women the choices they have in terms of careers and you know um, in terms of like where they are in terms of social status is dramatically different from how my mom grew up or my grandmom grew up and I think you know that's why like you know Tinder's really caught on to you know these themes of like female empowerment and changing social message so uh, it's really captured this time of change in India it's part of the national sort of conversation now obviously as part of other sort of if you look at macro trends in general, women are getting more affluent, more, like, you know, when people are getting married later. My parents are arranged, and obviously, I mean, I don't know about yours, but. Yeah, mine too. But in, the, in, in, in those times, it's, it's exactly like what he said. So going back to your point about whether those services will take off, the ones that you mentioned, I feel like loneliness is an opportunity. Your loneliness is my opportunity. Your loneliness the new Jeff is my Bezos. opportunity. That's. <laughs> Street of Vision. Dropping, <laughs> dropping some, <laughs> dropping some nuggets right here. Uh, if you look at countries like Japan, that Can you have, believe this podcast is free? But if you look at Japan many years ago, Japan, unfortunately, has a very sort of dwindling population. So they, the, the populations there, funny story, I sort of mine it in Japanese studies, but the population there, uh, obviously, they, they've, the, the, the older population suffered from loneliness and obviously there are robots now, now catered to it. But, but this, if you look at these days in the, whether it's in the valley or whether it's among millennials, loneliness is such a huge problem. It leads to mental issues, it leads to a bunch of other things. So I feel like an opportunity to, to serve this problem can manifest in numerous shapes and forms i feel like that obviously is, might be more applicable to to older people hiring people to keep you company but you know what i wouldn't be surprised if these things take off within like within the 30 to 50 year old groups as well you know what i mean so that's an untapped opportunity like as far as yeah loneliness man. yeah i mean sometimes i just want to shoot some hoops with somebody you know uh, i'm game okay. <laughs> now, we, now we just need a marketplace for this <laughs> the last question on dating because I had a friend who started a dating site and she, she's dropped it a bunch of reasons. One, it was hard to make money, but two, she also became a little socially disabused with the idea. She's like, wow, looks really are all that matter. <laughs> and also people are racist. I guess I'm just curious, like, does it make you more dystopian or I guess what did you learn about? <laughs> this podcast is not play around, right? Yeah. We're getting into some deep stuff here. Sridham, has work on dating made you dystopian? I, or disillusioned. I am single. So I'm like the last. <laughs> yes. So I should point out that, you know, though we might have similarities in resumes and names, you know, I'm at home watching Netflix. Hey, every I'm night. at home watching Netflix every night. <laughs> That's not true. The other, this other Sriram is incredibly active socially. You know, he's out on the town. I, am, I sleep at 10.30, I wake up at 7. And we now learn he's single. So there you go. 20 years ago, we had no data on how people date, right? We had, we had opinions. I don't know, maybe even five years ago, 10 years ago. Now, okay, Cupid, they wrote this book, you know, Tinder. I mean, we have, we have all this data on what people want. And how people match. What what have we learned as a society? <laughs> yeah, I think I think if you look at 
as far as my personal experience is concerned, I feel like, which I think we can project uh, onto the broader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. Uh, I, I feel like I feel like the optionality is such the the option to see another profile, to view another person, meet another person. I feel like that has sort of killed a lot of the opportunities to create meaningful relationships. Like in person, I feel like uh, like one thing I'm trying to do even more of. On uh, I just got back from vacation, two week vacation. Even more of is just schedule face to face meetings because. Like, I don't think people do this enough anymore. I feel like personally it has, since the sort of invent of social, like these dating apps, I feel like I've not met people face to face as uh, as much as I used to. And maybe that's one of the reasons why people like loneliness is such a problem yeah. because you sort of reduce people to profile pictures on your, on your, on your mobile phone. Mm-hmm. So we're all dehumanized in a certain way, right? So that, and then obviously the trend of gaming, the trend of doing everything online, that's just going to contribute to the problem. So I personally... So you're trying to switch to in-person meetings? I just well across the board across for everything, uh, but but I feel like I I don't know I mean there's like this Raya there's I mean I I there's so many dating apps out there but but people are still lonely people are still angry people you know, are still you know frustrated. What? This would make a pl- great plot for a romantic comedy movie. I mean here's this person <laughs> who worked on dating apps. But it's now disavowed them, right? He's I'm only the in-person conversation, no, no, no. and you know we have to be like a fun group of friends who you know can I, try and talk him out of it, and I, try and like in a cinema with somebody else. Guys, this, this is, is like the first act. Guys, of I haven't movie. sort of disavowed, but what I'm saying is I'm trying to meet more friends in person. In addition, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Totally, could still be a great movie. Yeah, yeah it could on, still be- <laughs> online, on, on the online to offline. That's a great I, title. Yeah. Right? Online to offline. <laughs> there you go. Totally. Okay, Spotify. Yes. Music. Well, first off, is Spotify even going to exist in five to ten years? What's the deal? The oh, label, I label's own Spotify. You're I'm bullish very on Spotify. Long on Spotify. So uh, say more about that. And uh, also, what are other opportunities for people to build companies in music? If yeah, all? absolutely. I think uh, so. I'm very long on Spotify for many reasons. One is I think obviously at the a Spotify has single-handedly changed the music landscape and the music industry over the past 10 years uh, for the better. Uh, it sort of caught on this. It, it rode the wave of streaming rightly and obviously a couple of other services like Amazon, Apple were late to the game. Doing okay, but still late to the game. I feel like Spotify, given how large, and again, I am removed from the company, so I don't necessarily, I'm not plugged into what they're doing right now, but given how big it is right now, I forget how many million subscribers it has, it in itself has become a platform, a distribution platform for, for artists to break out or for music labels to spend money on for marketing. So I feel like my take is I think Spotify will be the music industry in the future. It's making money of merchandises, it's making money of events, it's bringing its playlists on tour. I feel like maybe down the line it has the opportunity to 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 understand which artists are going to break out and help them expand. It has got the opportunity to work with labels from a from a promotional perspective because yeah. So I mean I, I I'm long on Spotify only because I also know that Daniel Ek, the founder, is he's a he's a product driven founder CEO and and everyone there is focused on deliver like delivering max like amazing value to the customer. It's constantly evolving. So I'm I'm just very long on Spotify. I'm still holding. My equity. I feel I, like I'm only long on them unless they, if they develop their own talent or like free themselves from the shackles of other labels. I, so, so, something I've been curious about, just to interject there, is you know I'm a huge fan of Spotify. I'm a paying subscriber. <laughs> I use them every single day. I think Daniel's an amazing um, product thinker and founder. But if you went back in time, say eight, nine, ten years, and you looked at the landscape, you had uh, you know Pandora, who had an existing brand for many, many years. You kind of dominated the serendipitous music streaming space as it was. You had people like RDIO uh, yeah. in the United States. You obviously had uh, you know Apple, the 800-pound uh, behemoth, who was the default way people listen to music. And all of a sudden, you had this tiny startup on the other side of the world in Europe. What 
do you think Daniel and Spotify did right, which led them to out-execute, out-maneuver a bunch of people who in lots of other cases would have probably won? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think one is... You should host this podcast, by the way. (laughs) That's a great question. So I think Spotify is very lucky to have been uh, started in Sweden, where uh, the Pirate Bay basically demolished the music industry. So the music labels there were far more willing to try out, uh, in Scandinavia, so Norway, Finland, Denmark, were far more willing to try and give Spotify a go. So that's how it started. Uh, back in the day, the funny story was Spotify. I mean, I was, I had my first Spotify account in May 2007 when I was studying in Stockholm. So back then, as part of the beta, we were just using MP3s to just basically show how seamless the product was. And then obviously with the caveat that, hey, down the line, we're going to get music legally. But the experience was so smooth. And so, but the music labels were very, very open towards experimenting, right? So I feel like that played a huge part. Now, and keeping in mind, keep, keep in mind that the, the barrier was very, very low. So the music industry was decimated and it had nowhere to go but up. So Spotify came in and said, hey, look, we'll, we'll, we'll give, give us your playlist and we'll stream it to everyone. And it worked. Eventually, people started paying and the music industry started to go up again. So now that grand experiment worked, what happened next? Spotify obviously expanded to Europe. One thing that happened in the US was obviously Apple's the incumbent big player. You have music labels that are big. I mean, if you're big in the US, you're sort of generally regarded as a global leader. It took a long time to convince them that that, that streaming worked. Obviously, there are other forces at play. Apple obviously had a huge pull. But what Spotify and Daniel did well was that persistence uh, along the way as a, as a way to to, to sort of solidify their, as a way, to, as a sign of goodwill or as a way to basically let the music partners know, labels know that, hey, you know what, we're in this for real. They invested their own money. So there's a series of numerous things that they did, but I would say persistence. They were just very dogged and, and they just basically flew in every, probably every other month and they basically slept, slept outside the doors of the music labels saying, this will work, this will work, give us a go. And eventually that persistence paid off, right? So I would say it's a combination of being very fortunate to start in the world that, that allowed for experimentation, obviously expanded very quickly and showed that in markets like Germany and Holland and South, Southern Europe, this thing can take off. And then with that data point, right? Imagine if you're a US music label and if you're afraid of cannibalization of your MP3s, if, if you show that, hey, you know what? Spotify, if you're showing that Spotify actually uh, is net positive, it, it sort of, it, it sort of reduces piracy and it, it's incremental, obviously over time exponential revenue to your, to your, to your services, to your, to your bottom line, then that argument gets more compelling over time, right? As you have more data points. So I feel like Spotify, upon convincing the US labels, and it's, by the way, it's not only labels, it's collecting societies and publishers, right? So you, we collectively call them rights owners. Uh, once that huge thing was overcome, then it's about just execu- dogged execution. So just so to touch your point about why they did this better than, I think it's just like consumers at that point were on YouTube. YouTube is the largest music service out there. Not many people know this, actually intuitively know this, but people were accustomed to streaming. It's one click go. It's like electricity. You don't have to download and, and, and get something you don't know. And the whole process of downloading an MP3 and playing it was so cumbersome. Having something at your fingertips, like Spotify, where it had this very distributed P2P structure initially that played something immediately was just so groundbreaking. So I feel like that you know, that shaving off a point. Like I remember there was a saying internally that if a song didn't load within point seven point, I'm making stuff up now, point X seconds, then it was a shitty experience. So just going, like delivering that sort of value and being dogged and it's, it's sort of and persistent, I felt like won the day. Was it ever worried that all the labels could basically band together and go like, hey, you know, why do we want to have this other company control access to our customers? We just get into business for ourselves. I mean, there's parallels here. If you look at, say, somebody like Hulu, which kind of done this in the video space, you know, 
know, kind of debatable how successful, you know, uh, they have been. Was it, was it ever, ever a concern and why did that never really happen? I think, I think there were many concerns. That was the, one of the many concerns, but I don't think that necessarily impacted product and development and whatnot. I think at the end of the day, if you look at services that music labels built it for themselves, the telcos built it for themselves. This is a question we get from telcos also. Hey, why don't we build something for ourselves? Then like more often than not, like that's not their core, core competency, right? Like when you're doing something that is outside of your wheelhouse, you tend to sort of deprioritize it. Like music labels have no competence when it comes to developing products, right? So being on the edge, being understanding, listening to your customer, looking at data. So I feel like they've tried in the past and have failed. So there are actually numerous services around the world like whether it's in India, South America, that were created and have been built by music labels, but have failed miserably because they don't know how to build and market and distribute, right? So having an independent third-party person come in and say, hey, look, we're net positive to the music industry, right? You're not going to cannibalize this. You're going to see a decrease in piracy, but an uptake in incremental revenue, like in, in this channel revenue, I mean, eventually convince them. So it's a perennial question, like for labels and telcos, especially like even telcos ask us, why don't we just build this and sort of partner with you? And we tell them, look, what, what, what look, at, look, look at the last time you built something. Let's see. Like, yeah. In the next five years, I mean, looking out, will there be a startup we haven't heard of that starts after today, inspired by this podcast, that becomes a, a unicorn or will it be, you know, in, in this broadly, you know, consumer music space or will it be, you know, Spotify and or, you know, Apple, Amazon? I think is there room for startups? I think like I mean there, music is so broad I think from a consumption perspective I feel like Spotify will always be that that point between like that that point of consumption I feel like there's an opportunity maybe around in adjacent areas within the music industry especially when it comes to like copywriting understanding copyright understanding like in one song and some songs may have two copyright owners other songs may have 85 rights owners I feel like within adjacent areas outside of consumption there's an opportunity to whether it's with, whether it's with blockchain or whether it's like you know what I mean to make it a bit yeah. more murky because traditionally music licensing markets are very murky so maybe there's an opportunity there to to make it uh, more clear uh, there's probably an opportunity on the um, uh, I mean Spotify Discover Weekly which I think is doing an amazing job but but there's probably an opportunity uh, on on the recommendation side I mean real time I don't, like you know there's an opportunities within adjacent areas that I, I mean I feel like Spotify will become this platform where other people will build stuff on so i feel like there's an opportunity there which i'm not seeing right now directly but yeah so again i'm i'm long spotify only because i've i've uh you've seen it i've seen it yeah, yeah. if i had to plug i think spotify is an amazing technology execution uh, i have to say their their ability to, to guess the next song in the playlist i'm not sure or is it auto advance i'm not sure what the, the name is called but where you have a playlist of songs and it just keeps playing it just picks songs from its library it almost always nails the genre the mood what the playlist is about discovery is another great example and it's kind of surprising how people like apple and others haven't executed the same way in applying like technology recommendation algorithms ai quote unquote which is often an overused word to music and i think spotify has just been like you know really good in that space I mean, in order to come out with something like that you need like a corpus of like data that's worth like like billions of lines of code like billions of lines of logs over like 10 years right and spotify has obviously been very fortunate to have that sort of data that sort of infrastructure to be able to understand this this behavior this consumption so actually it's funny you mentioned that because i was listening to my playlist which i haven't really changed in three years and it started playing songs that i thought was part of the playlist but actually was recommended by spotify yeah so 
Yeah, I mean, either way, just I've been very. I mean, Spotify and Tinder are sort of two like very. I mean, obviously, you can you can also attest to this given your amazing background. But but like just very like amazing recognizable consumer brands yeah. and 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 it's just like there there's certain things in these companies and we can probably talk about this in a bit. But there's sort of there, you can see sort of you can see certain threads that are very similar and sort of like like ruthless product focused yeah. founders like Sean Rand and Daniel Lake who are sort of always on the ball when yeah. it comes to like understanding consumer behavior and so on and so you can draw parallels and what works what doesn't work obviously Sriram you have seen this at scale uh, even larger scale than, than I have when I was not trying to jeopardize your new jobs <laughs> that's right let's shift over to you a little bit Snap Facebook Twitter well first just zooming out can anyone compete with any of these companies in this space or what are the opportunities in consumer social right now for, for entrepreneurs who are looking to build companies in the space? Well, I, the first thing I would have to say is like, if you are somebody smart in the space who's passionate, come join Twitter. <laughs> you know, uh, we have, you know, come uh, help us out. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, we'd love to have like more people join us and help us out the public conversation. It's a good question. Uh, if you could go back like five, six years, uh, you know, it was like a lot of the companies that we think of as normal now just didn't exist. Like Snap has only existed since what, 2011, 2012. I believe Twitter uh, is like 10, 11 years old. So these companies haven't like existed for a very long period of time. So it'd be naive for anyone to say like, hey, we have sort of discovered the boundaries of human expression. And how people can connect with each other. And that's it. I almost think it's a little depressing in some ways. Uh, so yes, there'll always be new ways human beings want to communicate and to express themselves. Now, the question is, like, I think a lot of these platforms are just really large. Uh, you know, like, uh, they reach hundreds of millions of people. And get better and better with data. And they, get better, they get better and better with data. And they can often, like, figure out how to bring those modes of expression onto themselves. So, for example, on if you think about, like, music, you know, Twitter has these huge communities around music. BTS, which is, like, a K-pop phenomenon, which, you know, I'm sure, if, if, which I sadly haven't listened to much, but it's one of the biggest music phenomena in the world. Huge huge deal on Twitter. So there's this, so a lot of the music conversation in the world happens on Twitter, for example. So whenever there's like a new form of expression, it could happen in a separate space or it could happen on one of these platforms. What I'm actually been really fascinated about uh, is also like new forms of communication or self-expression happening in totally unintuitive spaces. I'll give my recent favorite example outside of like just these three companies is Fortnite. You know, arguably, you know, the biggest new uh, media phenomenon, uh, gaming phenomenon of the last uh, six to eight months. And it is really sort of shaped culture. Like if you just go search for Fortnite on Twitter, the number of memes that you see, the number of like GIFs and highlight videos that you see is amazing. You at, In the World Cup final, you saw like Antoine Griezmann do the uh, the Fortnite L dance. So, and that is people communicating and expressing things in, uh, to themselves. So there will always be new forms of expression. There'll always be a new generation which wants to carve out a separate space for themselves. Uh, and uh, yeah, it'll be depressing if this is all the innovation that's ever going to be. So there are there are opportunities. There are always opportunities. Uh, I think, you know, I wouldn't be a Twitter if I didn't think like, you know, we could be like, one of these folks, like you know, finding amazing ways for human beings to communicate, but there'll always be opportunities. Are there any? Are there any like outside of Snap, Facebook, and Twitter, obviously, which are very, very obvious? Are there any methods or mediums of of, of social communication that you think haven't hit mainstream yet? That I think you think should hit mainstream that that these three haven't necessarily captured yet. 
Um, well, these three, all of these platforms are so large, so they kind of capture a lot of the activity that, that happens. But going back to the previous example, you know, think about how many young people today just, you know, grow up on, say, Fortnite. And that's how, you know, they learned how to form social connections. That's how they learned teamwork. Uh, you know, we used to play Call of Duty or, you know, a Counter-Strike and so on. But this is just at a completely different level. And it'd be amazing to see, like, okay, what is, like, the next evolution of, like, such behavior? Or if you go to somewhere like India, you get, like, totally different social communication patterns with their own little, like, you know, family of apps that exist only in India or definitely in China. And I think that's what's, like, really interesting. Like, these small apps, uh, if you, for example, if you go to China, you get all these short-form video apps, which exist only in China. And there are some which are famous and popular in urban areas. There are some which work only in, um, you know, not-so-urban areas. So there is, like, a socio-demographic aspect to these communities. And that's, like, a crazy form of communication. So you mentioned China. How much, like, how much, like, how much inspiration do you take from you personally or the companies that you've worked with from emerging? I wouldn't say emerging, but like huge, like China-based consumer apps or social apps because there's so many, mm-hmm. uh, and they're all doing really, really well, and they're all billion-dollar companies. So, like, how have you? De- how much? How much? You know, I was in India a couple of weeks ago. I was visiting family. And what really struck me was, you know, I go to India about once a year. My mom gets grumpy at me if she doesn't see me at least once a year. And, you know, like 10, 11 years ago, a lot of the inspiration that Indian entrepreneurs and founders would take were from American companies. You know, they would speak of, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, you know, Larry and Sergey, you know, and that would be sort of the people they would look up to. But this time around, last few years, if you go there, it's a very different crowd. They're looking up to folks like Didi. They're looking up to uh, Alibaba, like Jack. They're looking up to Baidu. They're looking up to people like, you know, Tutiao and ByteDance and Meituan, uh, Face Plus. There's like a bunch of these folks out there. And it's fascinating. And, you know, there is this cross-pollination happening where, you know, people still get inspired by ideas from China. And then some of these Chinese companies take ideas and inspiration from India. And since it's just across the border, you see a bunch of these uh, Chinese founders, you know, try and expand into India first. So it was very fascinating for me because, you know, in, when we grew up, you know, we would like look up to like, like back in the early 2000s, you look up like Larry and Sergey, right? Like they were the Google founders. They were sort of like, you know, the hotshots of that era or before that, like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, who was obviously always there. Um, but these folks, you know, they obviously care about the American market, but they are paying way more attention to, you know, uh, what DD is doing. I feel like China's like Chinese, China-based companies have done an incredible job sort of uh, investing in India, investing in Southeast Asia, obviously just becoming like, like, the, the do, like some of the most dominant investors, I mean, PAT, like there's so many companies you can cite where there's, there, there's sort of, it's a BAT, right? Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, even though it's more Alibaba and Tencent these days, but it's just phenomenal to see that. Uh, actually, it's, I think it's BAT, but it's also like a new breed of companies. Uh, for example, I think either DD, DD would be one, Maid one, one, one would be yeah, one. Yeah, and it's fascinating because to be honest, I'm not even familiar with like most of them. Uh, they operate sometimes only in China, but they're growing rapidly. Some of them are expanding into India. And a lot of the Indian founders I know are very familiar with them. They raise money from them. Uh, it, they're much closer social, cultural ties than they see with the US. Do either of you angel invest in international companies? Yes. How do you think about that in terms of what... <clears throat> Um, so I, 
so international is such a broad term, obviously, yeah. specifically to India and China. Uh, I am removed from China. I don't I, like. I may have been vague, like mildly connected when I used to live in Beijing, which is interesting because twelve years ago when I was living in Beijing, like they welcomed with arms wide open folks, international tech folks. Now, if you go back, they're like, "So what? If you're like from Facebook or Google, no one gives a shit here because we're big enough." So China is completely like. Yeah. I don't know anything about China. Uh, India is just familiar but distant. Uh, so for me, it's sort of mostly Europe. One or two Southeast Asia-based companies, just basically based on all my own networks as opposed to... I've not been proactive internationally as much as I want to. What about you? I used to be a little bit... I think, you know, my day job has kept me so busy, so I've been like really out of the, the loop a little bit. But uh, I was trying to understand the Indian market more, mostly out of, I would say, guilt. Like I grew up in India, you know, uh, uh, moved to the U.S. about... 10, uh, 10, 11 years ago, and I wanted to kind of understand the Indian ecosystem. And I was really impressed by all these founders who were just so energetic. They were building these amazing applications. They had no fear. They were considering these wild, crazy ideas. And I wanted to sort of be part of this somehow. So I was doing that. But uh, for the last year or so, I've been like really busy with Twitter. So not as much. You know, one phenomenon, sorry, Eric, sure. but which I thought was really, really interesting was back in the day when I traveled to India for Spotify, just doing diligence and whatnot. Obviously, I mean, back then, my my metric for tracking the affluent, so to speak, right? I mean, there are numerous signals. One is credit card, number of credit cards in the market, which is sort of an indirect indicator of how many people can buy services online. And then you have a uh, number of 3G subscribers or smartphones, there's many signals. And it was actually pretty small back then. I forget, 10 million, maybe 30 million. But, but what has happened recently over the past five years is you see international brands coming in. So anyway, sorry, my point, my point is back then, I used to have a very... Whenever I used to price out things, whether it's for Spotify or for any other services, I would say, you know what, let's price it very low because the average Indian user may not be able to afford it. But then obviously there's no such thing as average Indian user because in India there are layers. Uh, and if you sort of fast forward to today where you have Netflix, where you have all these Amazon like uh, video, Amazon Prime, uh, all these international brands in India are just killing it and uh, like an offering like like at, at, at international price points, right? And then obviously there's a market for it. I think India has emerged right. like like amazing. Like India has grown so much over the past five years. It's phenomenal to yeah, watch. Yeah, there are a few secular trends that have really shaped India. And I'm not an India expert. I'm just, you know, just somebody that goes there once a year and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. But one is just like, I think like if you go back 10 years ago, the wide adoption of broadband internet. And then you saw these first generation of companies. You saw Flipkart and Snapdeal really sort of, make mainstream the idea of like you can go buy things online i remember telling my mom and my sister hey you can go buy these things online and indians back then they were just that behavior just didn't exist and you know people uh, were always wary of like hey can i trust these folks where i know it's the right size like condition the folks in the u.s had had many years ago you know people are having in india at that point in time and i believe that first generation then led to this whole mobile revolution one of the interesting things about india is like india almost skipped the pc revolution and if you go there now like i went there like last week you will see a lot of behaviors which is actually ahead of where things are in the united states for example payments you know um companies like uh you know free charge and paydm along with the fact that india did this whole demonetization thing where you know they banned all their high order notes and they replaced them means that the way you pay for things is amazing it's way ahead of what we have with say like apple pay or you know or, or all the sort of like the multiple ways you can sort of pay wirelessly india you just like you know you go out there you scan this barcode and you're done and it kind of strikes me it, it really struck me to whoa you know here's a more seamless user experience than I have anywhere in the United States. A lot of that has got to do with Reliance Geo also. They came in and basically offered like basically free broadband, uh, all close to free broadband, cheap broadband to everyone. And then within a matter of months, if you're a snap dealer or flip card, I mean, if you 
track your users by broadband provider or telco network it used to be maybe Vodafone or Bharti Airtel and all of a sudden you see Reliance Joke accounting for 90% of your market like so I feel like a lot of those macro trends even China too but like 12 years ago I'd pay by cash now you, like it's cashless it's almost cashless because you have these, these mobile wallets that are you WeChat everywhere yeah you WeChat everything I mean WeChat obviously owned X 100 million 600-700 million users does it realize that wait a minute if they own the they own the users they could basically push anything down and they basically started with the 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 single point of entry was through payments because right. through payments you can get everything else i think the other thing which changed in india is the access to capital like 10 11 years ago i remember talking to friends of mine you know from my college batch who tried to be entrepreneurs it was really hard to raise capital you'd have to go to a bank and you'd have to convince them that yours was not a risky proposition and this whole like the venture ecosystem didn't exist at scale. or tiger or tiger global back then well he's back i think oh, oh is that earlier yeah. This is even earlier, okay, right? Yeah. But I think the fact that Tiber Global showed up, folks like DST yeah. started showing up, and then recently, you know, like the Vision Front from SoftBank showing up. Like these are famous ones, but a lot of like less famous yeah. ones. And I believe like these early founders getting liquidity. Like for example, Flipkart yes. selling a majority stake to Walmart meant a lot of people got a lot of liquidity. So you are sort of seeing like the same venture dynamics that you see here. People uh, like in India when I grew up, the idea was you got a safe job. Uh, and you, you know, and you constructed this very traditional, you know, non-risk taking household. But now if you go watch like a popular Indian movie, you know, the lead protagonist is out there being an entrepreneur. Right. So it's, it, it, so a lot of these phenomena kind of went hand in hand. And the fact that you had access to capital, the fact that being an entrepreneur became like a wide, like cultural uh, phenomenon, all these like really uh, added up. I'm curious how you guys view entrepreneurship. You guys both started companies? I've, so I've started one that my co-founder and I sold, yeah. And you, you as well? Uh, I haven't, but so when I moved to the US and my wife and I became permanent residents like six years ago, we had a deal. We said, you know, one of us will, you know, do a crazy startup and the other person will do a job which pays money. And so my wife has been the famous successful entrepreneur in the family for many years. She went to YC, had a fantastic company. You know, I like to joke that, you know, I I had a boring corporate job. Not so boring, but yes, uh, we de-risk the family that way. Right. You, so you're both execs. Uh, at companies do you see yourself getting back into the into starting a company someday or how do you think about it i think i think the way i see it uh there's a distinction i mean at least for me the, there's a distinction between being entrepreneurial and being an entrepreneur there's yeah. a big difference there i think i'm, I'm very entrepreneurial i'm mean, sorry and again it's two different skill sets like you can be entrepreneurial but you don't have to be an entrepreneur being an entrepreneur requires a lot more i mean sacrifice commitment and all sorts of things uh, I, I don't know. I, I quite like being an operator. I mean, if the right opportunity and problem solution presents itself, I don't mind partnering with people I'm comfortable with. I'm very much open to that. Uh, I, I have done it once in the past for a short time. Uh, managed to have a good outcome, fortunately. Uh, but, but I wouldn't necessarily consider that a rite of passage only because it was very quick. But I, 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 I remain open to it. I mean, it's, uh, if you saw, you know, between Sriram revealing that he's single and that he's willing to open up, I'm kind of curious about the kinds of uh, now outreach he's going to get from this podcast. A lot of recruiting for sure. <laughs> I'm very happy at Hitspin. <laughs> Excellent. So what about you? What about you? Well, that not, thought must have must have surely, surely come up. Well, I think so. For my wife and me, you know, we've known each other since we were teenagers, and we always aspired to this cliched version of the American dream. We always wanted to come here, build companies. One of our very first dates was to watch a a pirated version of 
uh, Pirates of Silicon Valley, uh, the old Noah Wiley, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates movie, and we were like, someday we want to go there. And, you know, and we've been lucky enough, you know, to get here to the United States uh, to have been like these really large, amazing companies. And in someday, actually, we want to try and like do this company together. But when I left Snap, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. You know, I kind of traveled a little bit. I was goofing around. I was doing a lot of investment. I spoke to a bunch of VC firms. I had no idea what I wanted to do next. And what I came back to, you know, when I started talking to Jack about Twitter was, you know, one of the things I applied, uh, which kind of drew me to Twitter was, hey, this idea that you could have this canvas and you could go build things which have real impact. So, you know, at Twitter, you know, we have this huge responsibility where we serve the public conversation. Um, but, you know, the teams that I work with can go build things, something, and the next day you get hundreds of millions of people who go see it. So that canvas uh, and playing with that, and especially such an iconic product was like super interesting and super alluring. But who knows? Like my, my wife tells me that, you know, someday before we retire in our old age, we should find a way to do a... a to do a company uh, together. That's, that's the goal. So we'll see. Maybe someday in the distant future. Do you think it'll be you and your wife or you and Sriram Krishnan? Uh, oh. <laughs> there we go. Dynamic yeah, that, I, you know, we, we, we'd make a pretty formidable duo. I Just think. think about the confusion. I think, on the, I think the average, <laughs> the average height will be like six foot five. And of course, you gotta <laughs> give each other 50 50. It can't be 50. Oh, it cannot be 50. Well, I cannot yeah, be 51. Yeah. We'll come in as an investor. Let's move on to ads a little bit. You did ads at Facebook, ads at Snap. As a Twitter as well, or just product? No, I am no longer in the making money business. There's a fantastic yeah. team at Twitter who does a great job of building revenue products. My hat's off to them, yeah. uh, uh, but I'm not involved with that. So before, I'm going to ask you sort of a series of questions and you answer whichever one is most interesting. We were talking about Chaos Monkeys before. Chaos Monkeys is a book which goes into, you know, this uh, this person, Antonio, what's his last name? Garcia Martinez. Hey, Garcia Mar- I've Martinez. never had to say out his name in public. I always had to type it out. Yeah, I was just about to say Garcia Marquez. Or something. I'm, <laughs> Garcia I'm probably mispronouncing it. No, no, you're correct. And, uh, you know, his journey through uh, starting a company through Y Combinator, getting acquired by Facebook, and then really details how ads work in Facebook and sort of these larger companies. I'm curious. So a few questions. One is, if you think there's anything interesting there in terms of describing to, you know, most people don't know anything about ads or how, how the ad exchanges work. If you want to give a little crash course, that's interesting. Otherwise, uh, I'm curious how you think you've, you've been working on ads for what? Five, six years. Five, six maybe years. Longer. Yeah. How has that evolved over time? What was your biggest contribution to the space? Where is it going in the future? Talk about ads for a couple minutes. This is interesting. So I should first discla- put up, have this disclaimer up front that I don't work on ads anymore. So my opinions might be like badly out of date. That book is fascinating. Antonio is quite the interesting character. It's, uh, I think we were chatting before this podcast and Eric compared it to Huntress Thompson meets Michael Lewis, which I think is like a fair comparison. And, uh, I think, I believe that book uh, actually has one of the best descriptions in the first couple of chapters of digital advertising. So, uh, and highly, and Antonio really knows what he's talking about when it comes to ads. So I think if you go back in time, the way digital ads uh, evolved is you kind of have to go back to you know the late 90s. In the late 90s, the idea was, you know, you paid Yahoo a bunch of money and they stuck this banner at the top of their site. It got a bunch of traffic um, and that was that. Uh, people weren't really clear what the value they got from this traffic was. Um, and there was this whole ecosystem where people paid, took their VC round that they raised, gave it to Yahoo, and maybe got some traffic, and that whole ecosystem never worked out because they never made any money out of it. And I don't think anything really changed until Google came on the scene in the early 2000s. And Google, you know, at the time, might have built probably one of the best businesses known to mankind in the early 2000s, where they basically came and said, hey, if you're an advertiser, 
you have a customer who's looking for your product. You search for flight to Hawaii and do you, do you want to get in front of that person who's literally just looking for your product right now? And, you know, they innovated so many things around uh, bringing in auctions, how they measure performance, just like a bunch of slow innovation. But it really started from the core principle of capturing someone when they have strong intent and they have expressed that. Um, and once Google did that, you know, obviously, you know, it, they were off to the races. It made them one of the most valuable companies on the planet, uh, you know, made a lot of people really wealthy. And I think it really started the modern era of uh, digital ads. And I think what people saw was, you know, if you go back pre-digital, most of the ad industry today is still dominated by television and to a lesser extent, print. And there's this huge ecosystem of how things work in television, how things are measured, how you spend money. You know, there's like these institutions have been built up over like decades of expertise. And, and what digital did is it said, Hey, you know, you can now directly start measuring, you know, these outcomes or supposedly. So that was number one. Number two was over time, as you saw these graphs, the amount of time people were spending on digital kept climbing. So if you look at the Mary Meeker, uh, talk that she does every year at Code, every year you see the stat where I believe print or radio would keep going down and digital would keep going up. And so advertisers start looking, hey, you know, here's this place where people are spending time in. So I need to go spend some money there. And B, I can now measure how my money is being spent. Because the historical joke about advertising was, I know only half my money is useful. I just don't know which half. And so digital gave this real illusion uh, at times of, you know, figuring out what your ROI or return on investment was. And that's what Google and then later, uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter really came on board, which was they said, okay, hey, we can help you measure the outcome that your ads have had. So for me personally, I got into the story circa late 2012, early 2013. Uh, I went up at Facebook. I had no background in advertising and I didn't know how ads worked. I didn't know, you know, I'd never run an ad on the internet and uh, maybe not even clicked on maybe, one. Maybe you were a millionth customer in one, uh, maybe. <laughs> you never know, right? <laughs> on some days. And I had no context. And for me, it was purely a question of, I know nothing about this space but I want to go understand something new. And Facebook was going through an interesting time then because, you know, Facebook had, you know, gone public uh, about like a year a year before that. And if you remember, the whole narrative was, hey, this company is, uh, you know, its traffic or user uh, behavior is moving to mobile, but the revenue business was dominated on the desktop. And so, and I was very lucky, you know, I got to be part of this team that built out uh, mobile app install ads, which was basically this idea that, hey, you know, if you want to get downloads for your app as a developer, you go to Facebook, you give them some bunch of money, you you tell them who you want to target and Facebook will go, you know, uh, user targeting, user optimization to go find that person for you. That's a question. Why? I mean, obviously, I'm just very curious behind the reasoning. Why, like, why at that point mobile like do- mobile app downloads like i mean when you could have resorted to just mobile li- like you know just links to websites or mobile sites right. like, what how did that like how did that come about it's actually fantastic so facebook had all of this uh and you know facebook had a slew of ad products which was about hey how do you drive traffic to a website how do you drive you know um drive likes to pages you know they had the whole thing yeah. the interesting about mobile app downloads was at the time that was not a sexy ecosystem you know, to put it mildly. 
there that whole era you know circa 2011 2012 mobile ad networks there were a bunch of players who were you know maybe slightly shady you know they were not making a ton of money and for actually at facebook there used to be discussion of hey should we even be in this business at all like why are we in there but it but i think a few things i think came together number one this was the era when the app store had been out for a couple of years but people are starting to learn how to make money on the app store there were all these games which had in-app purchases which were really exploding so candy crush saga was exploding uh, machine zones a game of war was exploding people are starting to buy things on mobile uh, as a thing you know they're entering the credit card uh, information so people like ebay or target or amazon start seeing like a lot of their you know purchases switch on to mobile that was one behavior and two was you know back then a lot of these other ad networks you know just didn't know how to personalize ads and show the right ads to the right person and facebook had a lot of great people who worked on it and you know they did a lot of great work to say okay hey how do we show this person the right interesting ad and when you're in the market for something and all of these things came together and it was magic and we were off to the races but then do you at that point did you feel like i mean because i as a as a consumer the first thing that that doesn't come to my mind is i want to download an app Right, so I feel like was that was that more of an opportunistic, like, oh, yeah. was that more of a play that was that was sort of that was meant for the advertisers than the users? Because from a consumer perspective, the last thing we want is an app. The, we want information, or we want you know what I mean. So how? So I think that's actually a myth. You know, there's actually this popular myth in Silicon Valley. There are two bunch of myths about I think this year. Number one is nobody clicks on these ads. And number two myth was, oh, these are ads are just from like VC-backed companies or our, that's it. And I don't think human beings think that way. I think, you know, a lot of folks, when they were on Facebook, they were just, just to pass the time. You know, you're standing in line at Starbucks, you were bored in class and you was flipping through and this thing stood out and caught your eye. You know, maybe it was Tinder saying like, hey, you know, you know, go meet somebody interesting. Or it was Candy Crush Saga saying like, hey, here's this fun game you should oh, play. Like Expedia, and, whatever. Trump, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it caught your eye. And what Facebook did, I think, a really good job of was trying to make sure that these ads showed up for the right person at the right time. And the key there was it had to be personalized. It had to be interesting. It couldn't be just an ad meant for anyone. It had to be an ad which was really tailored for you. And I think all of this just came together. I understand why Facebook ads work. Um, you know, you have, you know, my likes, you have all some information about me. Talk more about what was the ad strategy when you had to snap? Like what, how did snap have an opportunity to create a mega ads platform? I think all of these companies had, you know, multiple ads businesses. If you look at Facebook, uh, you know, they have, you know, an, a, a huge brand business, you know, where they're about, hey, how do we, if you're a brand, how do you get the word out? How do you get reach and messaging? If you look at Twitter, you know, uh, we have an amazing ad- advertising business, which, you know, folks like Matt Darella and, you know, Bruce head up, which is all about, you know, hey, if you're a brand, if you want to launch something, if you want to get your message out, if you want to be part of the conversation, how do you do that? So every one of these companies had multiple ways and multiple businesses in between themselves. With Snap, it was really about, you know, if you look, go back to Snap, the time I was there, you know, Snap at the time had just kind of come onto the scene. A lot of advertisers were really curious about how do you reach this audience, this young audience, which you may not have access to anywhere. A lot of the concepts around that time, things like lenses, uh, things like geofilters were very new. Nobody had really done a bunch of those. So, for example, the canonical ad when I was there at Snap was, you know, this this Gatorade lens, which, you know, where people would like dunk a bucket of Gatorade on you at the Super Bowl. Um, and 
back then, you know, that was like a, you know, nobody had seen something like that before. And that, I think, like, all tied up to, like, the appeal for, you know, why an advertiser would go to Snap. Right. And the idea, the, the dream was that all the money that was in brand, ad, brand advertising, TV uh, advertising, which is, I think, the majority of money in advertising, would at some point switch on to mobile and that they would find... The, that is the, yeah. you know, that is the... uh when is that going to happen? <laughs> I've been hearing that for the last eight years. You know, uh, that's the holy grail. Every you know, and it, and I believe every year it gets us a little closer. Every year we get a little better at measurement. Every year we get a little better at being able to prove how these ads work. Since I don't work in the industry, you know, I think a lot of this is about you know just how do you shift culture because a lot of these organizations, you know, uh, I think they just have a lot of existing ways of working with. TV. Uh, for example, many, many years ago, I remember meeting um, this person who worked for a really famous CMO. And this person said, well, you know, we'd love to work with you, but we can't because my boss wants an ad that shows up at, like, you know, on this TV show. Right. And that's the, and that was the only reason, you know, <laughs> or many stories like this. Or, you know, if you go on 101, you know, right here, you see all these ads. And I will bet a lot of these, some of these ads are great because, you know, there's a good Silicon Valley audience. A lot of it is because that somebody you care about can see that ad when they're making their daily commute. And, you know, obviously, you know, I don't mean to say like, you know, there's a ton of validity in how, you know, these folks think and how they work with, just traditional forms of advertising. I just think it's a generational mind shift change. So there's one interesting, so again, me, I'm a buyer of these services, right? And I've been for a long time. So, and, and this is sort of more anecdotal than anything else, but it sort of helped me view these companies in very different lights. So when I first started using Google and Facebook a long time ago, the experience was very seamless, right? It was very straightforward. And I thought, wow, this is actually a very lean machine, a machine that's able to monetize very quickly. Back in the day when I started using Twitter ads, it was frustrating AF and I just wanted to pull my hair out and I said, there's no way this company is going to survive. And then that, I had the similar deja vu when I was trying to buy snapped, snap ads recently. Like not, re- when I mean recently, I mean like a while back, right? So, so, and I felt like, like, and, and then after coming out of that, those two experiences, I was like, hmm, like when I saw history playing itself. I was like, hmm, these two companies are doing well. So anyway, long story short, I like after going through the process of buying snap ads for an international audience, I know it was limited at first and it was a, it was just such a frustrating experience. Is this story going to end with you making a lot of money? No, 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 no. But I was like, but it just, again, anecdotal, but I was like, it just, for me, it was a, was a very interesting, like, vantage point of how these companies viewed advertising. Because I know by virtue, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or not net, don't have to comment, but I knew that the way Snap was delivering its ad product, I don't think it, it cared about advertising as much as people wanted it to care about, right? And Twitter, same thing early on. Obviously, this has changed over time when you're sort of, when you're sort of faced with the pressure from the street, but, but, but at least that was sort of my very limited like worldview from like advertising uh, as, as a buyer. I, I think all the classic famous consumer product companies in Silicon Valley have all followed a similar pattern, which is when they started off and as they should, they've really focused on the customer experience. They really focused on like product market fit. And they've said, you know, and maybe some of, some of them waited too long. They've said like, we will go figure out how to monetize this later. And so if you go back to the early stages of, of many of these companies, even if you go back to the early stages of Google, like way back like 99 or 2000, or if you go back to the early stages of like Facebook, say circa 2005, 2006, a lot of them had, you know, these founders who were obsessed with 
with you know delivering a great product with finding product market fit competing and all that good stuff and i think as they should and that culture often like tended to last for some period of time until you know they need to scale scale the business and they need to get more people um and then inevitably you know you kind of had to get this other you know you had to figure out how do you actually go monetize the thing like, i'm pretty sure like tinder probably saw something similar I mean, I, I, Tinder, I think, hasn't really explored the ad business yet. I think it has an option. Yeah, but like subscriptions and, yeah, you know, right. No, so it does take time. It's just that, no, no, sorry, I completely agree with you. I don't, I didn't mean to diss the companies that you worked for. Some of the companies. I know all of them. But, but, uh, but it was just very, a very interesting vantage point of, like, when Google 2005, 2006, when I was using that, so, like, like AdSense, whatever, it was just such a very, like, seamless global experience. And then I was trying to do the same thing at Facebook. Again, same experience, but then, wasn't anyway, but long story short, Twitter is obviously in a very different place right now. Snap is still developing and work, uh, Snap is still a work in progress, I feel like. But anyway, that's my two cents on ads. That's the only thing I know. It's <laughs> the other student, Krishnan, who's been saying all of this. Yeah. <laughs> We're all works in progress. Gearing towards a close a little bit here. Uh, I know we've been talking about, you know, fairly macro, somewhat superficial topics. I want to get into some deep and vulnerable stuff here. Will LeBron James win a championship in the next two years? Of course, yes. Duh. What next? <laughs> So this year? Uh, so, okay. So the stick here for uh, folks who haven't been inflicted by my tweets is I've been a long-term fan of LeBron James. And I realized that saying that in public, especially in San Francisco, and so on my people. So I started enjoying doing that and doing that a lot more. Uh, and so I have this history of, you know, tweeting, talking about him, posting on every social media forum out there. And it's all fun until I think game when it was 3-1 in the finals like a couple of years ago and to be completely honest even like i thought like we had like, the caps had no chance of coming back and then you had this miraculous turnaround happen and ever since then you know i've taken a lot of fun in being a provocateur about all things lebron but uh having said that uh you know i'm really excited for his stint in la like all of us we were all disappointed in his caps uh supporting cast it's going to be interesting to see how we build out the team in la you know what kari leonard does like next year or whether they pull off like uh you know maybe they get like paul george i think paul george just like signed a long-term thing with like okc yeah. so you know maybe they get <laughs> someone else but i have faith you know i have faith in the good do you think J.R. Smith revives his career, or is it the last thing he's known for is Game One of the NBA Finals? Uh, I feel for him. I do. I I kind of. So this is one of the things my wife and I really disagree about. She's not a J.R. Smith fan. She's Interesting. Gonna be, she's going through that. I just I, I mentioned this in the podcast. Uh, but and, but I actually like him because Me too, yeah. you know I think he plays it hard, and you know when he's on fire, he's on fire. But. I do worry that the iconic image of J.R. Smith is going to be that game one uh, last, you know, clock running out sequence. But I hope not. I think he's, you know, I actually think he's a good guy. I think, you know, he's, he's had these fantastic plays. You know, he hustles. He makes those, you know, clutch threes every once in a while. You never know when he's going to be on fire. You never know when it's going to be like, you know, that J.R. Smith. But when he's on fire, he's great. But I don't know. You know, I have hope. I actually like J.R. He's fun. Well, I found out from a mutual friend, Ron Artest, a.k.a. Meta World Peace, that you were in a somewhat of an advisor to to him. Uh, so, JR, if you're listening to this, talk to Sir M. Krishnan. That, that, it, yes, that, there we go. That, that should be the key takeaway, right? Guys, this has been a pleasure. Thank you guys so much for, for coming to the podcast. Where can people find you online and what should people stay tuned for? In the latest of the world of Sriram Krishnan. Just search for Sriram Krishnan. No, no, no. You'll no, be taking you're... the right one. <laughs> no, no. He's at Sriram K. I'm at Sriram Kree. Uh, he's at Sriram, he's Sriram K at Gmail. 
I'm Sriram Kree at Gmail. To, to be clear, I own SriramK.com. I own SriramKrishnan.com. I have done the land grab of I, all these digital in 05, spaces. In 05, I wanted to buy these things. It was all taken. We need to decentralize. Oh. Thank you so much. It's been Thank a blast. You Thank much, you so everybody. much for having us. Pleasure as ours. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 